All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. So as we, as we look at this, like with all other prophetic scriptures that we're pretty sure we know everything about, we should probably do our best to table what you already know and try to read and go through scripture with fresh eyes. Because nothing's worse than already knowing what you think everything's about before you start. So we want to be able to have eyes that see and ears that will hear and lay it out for us. What we need to recognize and realize, uh, Taylor says this, I, I like this quote. He says, the point of this chapter, the key to understanding this chapter is this. Ezekiel has been promising his people a change in their fortune. New leadership, remember? Bad shepherds, a restored land. We talked about that last week. Rebuilt cities and the messianic era. So when we come to scripture like this and like many others, a lot of times people will talk about ideas like dual fulfillments. We're obviously going to be talking about Israel coming back into the land, which they're in exile at the time Ezekiel writes this, right? They're in refugee camps in Babylon, and so that is certainly part of it, but if you'll hear, there's more to it than that. In the seeds of hope that God gives through the prophets to the people in the refugee camps, he's also planning for them the restoration of the world. And whenever we talk about the restoration of the world, we, we talk about Edenic ideas, the earth being healed the beauty of trees and plants and flowers. And, and uh, in Isaiah, if you, if you ever read Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah chapter 11, you have the wolf lying down with the lamb. You have a child playing at a cobra's den. Now, if you know anything about cobras, they're aggressive. There's no such thing as if you see a cobra, leave it alone, it'll leave you alone. That's not true. Cobra is one of the... the uh, species of snake that is aggressive. So if it sees you, it's coming. It's not going away. It's coming. But the promise of God to his people is there's a day coming when a child can play by the cobra's den. When all the things we worry about every day, anybody got anything they worry about? When all the things we worry about every day, the Lord says there's coming a day when you're not going to have to worry about any of that. Remember the days, us old guys, we used to talk about the days when we didn't lock our doors. Well, I still don't lock my doors. But to talk about the days we didn't lock our doors or, or you would just let the kids play outside. When I was a kid growing up, our rule was come home when the street lights come on. Now, for folks in Idaho, you guys don't know what that is. There's no street lights anywhere in Idaho that I know of. Maybe downtown in Boise. But in the town I grew up in, there were street lights. And the street lights came on. They were programmed to come on when it got dark. And no, now I'm not saying bad things didn't happen. I'm sure bad things happened still in that world. But growing up, we, we didn't know anything about it. It's not that way anymore. We have a lot of things to worry about and be concerned about. And God's promise to his people is not just, I'm going to bring you back. Not this generation, but in a generation, I'm going to bring you back into the land. But it's not just that that this prophecy is talking about. This prophecy is talking about him giving life to the dead. 
which is going to speak to New Testament fulfillment in Christ. It's going to talk about a Edenic hope when, when the day will come, when the people will dwell in safety. The Bible says that there's a day that's coming where they will take their swords and they'll make plows out of them. And they will study war no more. That's not our world today. Can you imagine not studying for war? Not being prepared for the enemies who are coming? But the Bible teaches, and we'll see it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's coming up. We'll get to, it's probably going to take a few weeks to do that. But that's, that is the, the focus on God's absolute deliverance from evil. We'll see that. Just like in Armageddon, just like in Revelation 20, we'll look at those references too when we get there. But the, the Lord promises a day when those things will end. When all that stuff, once and for all, is going to get put down. It's all going to get put away. So the Lord is sowing into the promise of return, also the future redemption of his people, the cleansing of the people, the, the restoration through Jesus Christ of not only the nation of Israel, but you and I who become the temple of God. When we get to Ezekiel 40 through 48, we're going to read a lot about a temple, and I'm going to tell you, all of that's not about a physical temple. And you're going to tell me I'm crazy. But I'll tell you this. I'm not looking for a temple to be built. The temple is God's people. God's people are the temple. Now, are there prophecies still of a coming world leader who's going to stand in the holy place and declare himself to be God? Yep. But we make some assumptions there, so we're, we're, we'll talk about that when we get there. But the point being, as we look forward, we, do we see the eschatological reality that God has, has brought his people, not just to the, the end of an age and the end of a temple, but if you remember, the temple's rebuilt, the people come back and worship the temple, but there's never a glory. The glory of the Lord never comes. The glory of the Lord never enters the temple like it did at Solomon. So what happens? What happens is Jesus Christ, the glory of God, comes to the temple to cleanse it. And he says, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. So he says, clean this out. Wipe this out. Let's, let's. And for four days, the people examine him. And ultimately, the leadership rejects him. And when he leaves, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And not one rock will be left on another. Now that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you, as a believer, are the temple of God. When you, we have this thing we talk about, right? Asking Jesus into our heart, which is a simple way of saying, is Jesus, is Jesus Christ in you? Because the Lord declares that when we believe, when we have repented, and we believe the Holy Spirit enters into us. The Bible says that Jesus Christ commands all men everywhere to repent and believe and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is God in you, the glory of the Lord in his temple. So all of these things are being illustrated and shown to us 
as we work our way through. So I just invite you guys, come along with me, and we'll take a look at the promises of the resurrection of the nation and of God's people. Let's look. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. So the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. So this prophecy ought to remind you of Revelation right out the gate. So Revelation 1, verse 10, John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So John, when he's having the vision of the... Uh, of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. When he's having that vision, he says, I was in the, I was caught up in the spirit. Chapter 4 of Revelation, he's going to say, say the same thing. The spirit brought me up. It lifted me up, brought me and showed me. And here you have Ezekiel saying the same thing. Ezekiel is saying, look, I'm, I'm having a vision. I was brought by the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of God set me down in the middle of a valley. Now, this is weird though, right? It's being in the middle of a valley of dry bones. Now, for the nation of Israel, dry bones, that's how they always did their burials. Every time they would do a burial, they would take their, the body of their loved one, they'd lay it in a crypt, uh, a cave. We've all seen pictures, right, of the, of the cave that Jesus Christ was laid to rest in. Now, they don't just close that, leave them there, and never come back. They put the body there until the body decomposes. And then they come back and they gather the bones. And the bones are placed in an ostuary. They're put in something called a bone box so that for them, in their cosmology, so that God has something with which to bring them back at the resurrection, right? The, the bones are there gathered in the family crypt. And then that cave would be left available for the next family member who died. And the next one would be laid there. You, oftentimes you had several, several slabs, I guess, as a way of looking at it. So multiple people could be left there to decompose at a given time. So they would gather all these bones. We see in Catholicism sometimes the same thing. I had an opportunity when I was in Jerusalem to go to a, a what do they call them? A, uh, not a mortuary, but that's what it looked like. What am I trying to say? Babe? You can't help me. No. Where do monks go? Monastery. Okay, you guys are with me now. So, okay, so I went to a monastery. And here's the thing about this monastery. It was, it was cool to see, you know, the, the ascetic lifestyle and monks that, that spend their whole life just in this place. But they have rooms and rooms and rooms full of bones and all those bones are monks from the last whoever knows how long as long as the monastery has been there and when the monks are buried they're laid the rest when their body decomposes they gather the bones here's a weird thing they keep all the heads in one room all the arms in another room uh, all the legs in another place so you have these rooms just full just as full as you can imagine, like the, the most crazy hoarder house you ever saw, full of bones. Now, the reason why Jews keep the bones and the, the monks in the monasteries keep the bones is by faith looking forward to a resurrection. 
what we're going to read about in Ezekiel 37. They keep it because Ezekiel 37, God brings the bones back. And while it's a picture of the nation of Israel being restored, it is also a picture of the resurrection, that God is able to bring life where there is no life. Do you believe that to be true? So I have seen God resurrect marriages. I have seen God resurrect relationships. I have seen God resurrect churches. I've seen God resurrect anything you can imagine as being dead. God is able to bring to life. Right? What did the psalmist declare? Unless the Lord builds a house, what? They labor in vain who build it. So we need him, right, more than we need anything else. We need the Lord more than we need TVs or lights or mics or any of the other stuff we have, computers, whatever. More than all that stuff, we need the Lord. Because unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. So here's Ezekiel, caught up by the Spirit of the Lord, brought to a field of bones, So I just want you to understand, in their minds, already there are hints in the Old Testament, right, to the resurrection. A contemporary of Ezekiel, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, writes about the resurrection of the righteous and the the wicked, right? And so we have the concept. Now, it doesn't get fully developed until Christ. When Jesus is standing before Mary and Martha, and they're weeping over the loss of their brother, do you remember what Jesus tells them? Martha says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will rise up in the last day at the resurrection when the bones come to life. He'll rise up again. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jackie paraphrase now. Nobody dies in Christ. Nobody. If they're in me, I'm life. There's no death in me. Now you and I may experience what we call death here. We may have physical death that comes for us, but all physical death is for a believer is access into the presence of God. Death here is our birthday in heaven. In the, in the presence of the Lord. He says, I'm the resurrection. It's me. And these are the things that the prophets alluded to. They, they saw through a glass darkly, right? And through Christ, we understand more. And we understand more. Now, one day we'll see face to face. So Ezekiel, he's there in the valley of dry bones. So he's thinking here, hey, I'm, there's bones all around me. Look what it says, verse 2. He led me around among them. And behold, there were many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. So they're, I want you to kind of picture crumbly old bones. Just like the bones we would see in, a, in an ossuary in Israel today. Old bones. Bones, you know, 
blows my mind. I just want to blow your mind for a minute. If you go to Israel and you go to the cave of Machpelah, which is hard to get to because most tour, tour groups won't take you there. You go to this place and you walk into the cave of Machpelah. Abraham's bones are there. That's Genesis. You get that, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the family cave where they laid their bones to rest is Machpelah. It's still there. Holy to those of Islam and Jewish descent, they split the cave in two. Jews can go in one side. Doesn't look like a cave anymore. It looks like a building. Jews go in one side. And uh, um, the Islamic Arabs go in on the other side. Because both of them, Abraham's the father, right? You remember that whole Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac? That's mind-blowing. So here, Ezekiel's walking through the valley. There's all these dry bones around them. They're very dry. And he said to me, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel knows it's a trap. Right? If, if you and I were walking in bones and we said, can these bones live? You and I would say, no. These bones ain't coming back. But if God asks you, it's a trap. What is, what's Ezekiel say? Oh, Lord God, you know. Is there anything God can't do? Not a thing. There is nothing he can't do. So he said to me, so he speaks to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, hear the word of the Lord. Now I want you to listen to that. How do dry bones live? God could have done anything here. Could have snapped his finger. Could have told Ezekiel to speak some special phrase. He did none of that. What did he tell him to do? Prophesy, speak the word over the bones. You think that just is because it doesn't matter? It's just a, it's the word of God that brings life. The word of life. Who's the word of life? In the beginning was the word. The word was? With God and the Word, was God and the Word became flesh. Who's the Word? Who is God's message to the masses? Jesus. Who has revealed God to us that we can know Him? Jesus. Prophesy, speak the Word over these bones. And so, he's, he's to speak the Word of God. Verse 5, so thus says the Lord God to these bones... I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and I will cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you will know I am the Lord. Do you ever read the book of Ephesians? Because the book of Ephesians talks about, to me, talks about this, this very same thing. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, if you guys want to go there, it's not going to come up on the screen because I didn't put it on. 
I didn't know I was going to talk about it. So, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says to them what? You who were dead in your trespasses in sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. Is there anyone who is not a child of wrath on earth? No. We are all children of wrath. We are guilty men and women before a holy God. And we are storing up wrath, the wrath of God, in the day of judgment. Each one of us. That's what we do. This is what Paul's writing about in Ephesians 2. We are at enmity with God. We're at war with God. I'm thankful that that's not the end. It says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, we hadn't done anything deserving. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together. How? With Christ. Made us alive together. Prophesy over these bones. Speak to these bones. Tell these bones, I'm going to make you live. I'm going to bring these bones to life again. I'm going to bring them up. And you shall know I am the Lord. <laughs> to me, one of the greatest evidences of a believer is not the clothes they wear. It is the transformation that takes place in their life. I was blind. Now I see. I was dead. Now I live. Oh, I'm not perfect. We're still looking through a glass dimly, right? But there's a day coming. And that's the promise that Jesus is talking about. So it says in verse 7, Ezekiel prophesied. I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, a rattling of the bones. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinew, and flesh came on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. So the bones all come together. Get, it must have been a trip to see, don't you think? Uh, sometimes when I hear about these stories, I just think, what in the world, man? What that look like? All the bones come together, and then all the parts of the body just appearing and attaching to the bones and skin wrapping it and all those dry bones became men and women I assume gathered together in, in this place clothed in skin but there was no breath the ruach of God when God made Adam what does it say he formed him of the clay and then what did he do? He breathed in him. Interesting, no? The word for breathe is the word ruach. That's the Hebrew word. It's the word for breath, wind, and spirit. 
And so the Lord breathed on him. What's it say when Jesus was standing in John chapter 20 before his disciples? After the resurrection. And he looked at them and he, the Bible says, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now the last time God did that, man lived. Right? And this time when God did it, the Spirit indwelt the disciples. And here we have the, the precursor. The precursor to that day, he says, there's no breath in them. But in verse 9, look what it says. Then he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the Spirit. Prophesy to the wind. Prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the Ruach. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. And so this breath comes from everywhere, this wind of God. It comes, is there somewhere you can hide from God's spirit? Does the Bible declare I can, I can if I need a break from God, there's somewhere I can go? You guys heard of uh, Elijah, the prophet? You guys remember Elijah? He had his big battle with the 400 priests of Baal, and they had a contest on who was serving the real God. You guys have heard this before? The priests of Baal, they have this big sacrifice, and so they, whoever can call down fire from heaven to devour the sacrifice, that God's real. And the 400 priests of Baal spend all day jumping and singing and carrying on and doing all their stuff, and Elijah keeps poking at them, hey, maybe he's asleep, you should get a little louder. But no fire comes from heaven. And then... Elijah covers the altar with water, digs a moat around it. The moat's full of water. There's water everywhere all over his sacrifice. And he prays to Yahweh, and the fire comes down and takes it all. The stones, the sacrifice, the water, licked dry. Boom. Big sign, big symbol. God is Real And everyone repented and life went on happily ever after. Oh, that's not how it went. You mean when people saw an amazing sign from God, they, they didn't believe? No, because man's rebellion isn't because man doesn't believe. Man's rebellion is because of man's rebellion. And until he turns from his rebellion, it don't matter what you show him. So Elijah is excited. He's so excited he runs as fast as the chariots. And he runs all the way back and he runs into this gal named Jezebel. You guys remember Jezebel? And he gets to Jezebel and Jezebel says to him, this is Jackie paraphrase, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you think you saw, we are never going to serve the Lord God Almighty and this time tomorrow I'm going to kill you. And Elijah said, I quit. Turned around, ran as far as he could. And then he passed out. And an angel comes to him. He's, he's ran as far as he could run. And he falls on the ground, can't run no more. And an angel gives him an, angel food cake. I don't know. He feeds him. What else do you say an angel fed? An angel fed him a cake. So angel food cake works. And he jumps up and he runs and he runs and he runs until he finds a cave. And he runs into the cave. 
That's it, God, and I'm done. No more. Had enough. I don't want any of this stuff. Forget it. Is there anywhere you can hide from God's spirit? Did God meet him in the cave? I love what God says to him. Hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? Lord, I have been faithful to you, and I'm the only one left. And the Lord says, no, you're not. That's Jackie paraphrase, but if you read it, you'll see. You're not the only one. There's lots of people left. And then he asks him again, what are you doing here? Then the Lord showed him three signs, mighty wind mighty fire but the scripture says the Lord wasn't in any of those and then he came to him in a still small voice and he said Elijah what are you doing here it's at that moment that God gives Elijah the last three things he's going to do last three things of his ministry one of those being to call forth Elisha, who's going to go on and carry on the ministry. There's no place we can hide from God's spirit. So when the Lord says prophesy to the spirit, it comes from everywhere. Is there some place God is not? What does the psalmist declare? If I make my bed in the heavens, he's there. If I make it in Sheol, the grave, he's there. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, he's there. There is no place I can go where the Spirit of the Lord is not. Prophesy to the Spirit that the Spirit will come and give life to all these bones. O breath, breathe on the slain that they may live. Job 33.4 says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 34, 14, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all life would perish. Who holds our breath? The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the creator of all the universe and that in Christ, all the universe is held together. He holds it all together, all life. The Bible tells us, Peter tells us, there's a day he lets go. So far, that's not been today. Even if it feels like he has, he hasn't let go. He is still moving on the throne, still working. I love what Job said in Job 19.25. All his life is falling apart. His buddies are all giving him what for, you know. You're wicked, you're unholy, you're, you, you must have done something wrong for all the stuff that's happening to you. Job says, Job 19.25, I know my Redeemer lives. And there will be a day when he will stand on this earth. I know my Redeemer lives. Whatever we need from the Lord God. He's with us, and there's nowhere we can go from his presence. So Ezekiel says, verse 10, I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, 
Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, listen to what they say. Our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. We are cut off. But are you really? Nope. Nope. You ever feel like your bones are dry, your hope is lost, and you are cut off? All that's left is to die. If we're honest, we all feel that way from time to time. But the Lord said to the refugees in slave camps, if your hope's not dry, there will be a day your Redeemer lives and he is able to bring life to the dead. He's telling the refugees, your nation will live again. Did they come back to the land? Absolutely, absolutely they did. Will there be a day when the dead will rise? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Revelation tells us all about it, don't it? There will be a day. So he says in verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, Listen, this is why I'm saying this is twofold. This is also personal. I will open your graves. He's talking to refugees. Your graves. I'll raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you to the land of Israel. And you will know I am the Lord. When I open your graves and I raise you from my graves, O my people. Listen. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and you will know I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you back. There will be a day. Now, He's going to give another prophecy that shines a little bit of light on the one we just read in verse 16. He says, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and all the people of Israel associated with him. And take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons. And all the house of Israel associated with him. Now why is he saying there's two sticks? Because when Israel ceased to exist, how many kingdoms were there? Two kingdoms. What were they called? Judah and Ephraim. Ephraim was the, was the biggest tribe of the ten tribes to the north. Judah, the biggest tribe to the south. That's how it worked. And so as they divide, the Lord says, I want you to take these two sticks. They represent the two kingdoms, right? Israel's been gone 150 years at the time when, when Ezekiel's talking about this. The, the nation of Ephraim, they, went, they were taken by the Assyrians. None of the Judeans have seen anything or heard anything from them. But listen, the Lord says, take this, these two sticks, listen, verse 17, and join them to one another, to one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph, that is the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah. 
and I will make one stick. How many nations of Israel are there today? How many nations were there at the time of Christ? One. Any lost tribes? Nope. Do you know why? Because people in Israel act like us. Do you know how many Californians are in Idaho right now? So if California falls into the ocean tomorrow, there will still be Californians because they've moved all over. They've moved to places that have the same kind of ideology that they want, right? They are abandoning the ideology of the land they're in. When a northern kingdom started, the Lord said to Jeroboam, look, if you do what I tell you, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a lasting kingdom. And so Jeroboam didn't want the people to go to Jerusalem to worship God, so he planted two idols, two golden calves for the people to worship, one in Dan and one down Ephraim, so that the, they could go to either place. And he said, and the Lord said, okay, well, since you've done that, then I'm not going to make you a lasting kingdom. And there was no good kings in the north, ever. No good kings. But all the people from the ten tribes to the north who wanted to worship the Lord God Almighty, where did they go? South. And what about the Judeans who didn't like this? I don't want to just worship this God. I want to worship them golden calves. I want to have some of what they're having in the north. What'd they do? They moved north. So in each half, the northern and the southern kingdom, you had representatives of every tribe, every tongue. They are all there. Nobody's lost. But God says, when I bring the land, when I bring the nation back, there's going to be one kingdom. One. And at the time that Christ comes back, they're not ruling their self, but there's just one Israel, right? Not two. There's just one nation. Today, there's just one nation. He says they will no longer be two. But listen, he goes on. They will not defile themselves anymore. Okay, that hasn't happened. You get that, right? They, they were one kingdom, but they defiled themselves at the time of Christ, didn't they? Yeah, what about now? 90% of Jewish people are unbelievers. 90%, that's, that's a lot, right? So they shall not defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, or any of their transgressions. I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Listen, verse 24, my servant David will be king over them all. Who's that? Jesus. What do we call that? The messianic kingdom. There will be a day on this earth that Christ will reign. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. My servant David will be king over them. They will have one shepherd. How many shepherds? One shepherd. And they will walk in my rules and obey my statutes. They will dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. I still love that song, The Blessing, because of that. I know. 
everybody loves it. It's too bad. I'm going to sing it at the end of every church service from now until I decide not to. So you can either pray for a new worship leader to take over or just give in. But I love the line to our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. Why? Because we ought to, men and women of the church, we ought to start looking a little further than from ourselves if we want to have an effect on a lost world. Cannot just be for me. It's got to be for my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids. The choices that I make, the things that I do. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. How long? Forever. That's a long time. I will make a covenant of peace with them. There will be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land, multiply them, set my sanctuary in their midst for how long? Forever. Now, what do you think that sanctuary is going to be? Because when we read Revelation chapter 21, it's going to say these words. There was no temple there. How come there's no temple there? The Lord don't need a temple. Why? Because he's going to dwell with his people. In the midst of his people. We'll see him. No wandering, no it's, we're, he'll, he will be in our midst, in the middle of us. And Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Just so you know, the sanctuary he's talking about is the people. The people, the believers, the ones who come to Christ, who he cleanses and who he gathers That's his sanctuary, his people. So the Lord can make dry bones live again. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for our time together. To be able to look at Ezekiel 37, Lord, and to allow, God, the truth of your word to guide us and lead us and direct us. Lord, we want to honor you as we study your word, that we might know your word, God, that we might learn the things that you're teaching us, that we might hold fast to all that you have showed us and all that you have told us, because your word declares over and over again I'm going to do this thing, and when I do it, you will know that I am the Lord. When God changes our lives, when he sanctifies and cleanses, justifies, and the hope of glory resides in our hearts, then we know the promise of God when he said, I will cleanse you. I wash your sins away. And you will be my people and I will be your God. Lord God, we thank you so much for your promise delivered to us that we might believe, that we might have our hope in you. Lord, we give you praise and thanks tonight. 
We ask your blessing as we go from this place. In Jesus' name.